Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, January 13th. It's over for us here in Ann Arbor. Championship Sunday officially in the books at the Varsity Tennis Center. Alex Gruskin and Chris Helioris back with you to conclude our coverage of this Oracle Pro Series event, the first challenger event of the 2020 season. I'll bring him first to kick off this pod, the forefather of the college tennis ranks formula predictions never far from the listed UTR and one of the many dames to now root for the Liberty Flames Chris Hallioris it's going to be weird tomorrow Chris to not spend six hours sitting side by side yeah I don't know I'm going to turn tennis on and just call you and you know <laughs> what's up Alex you know we've been doing that for the past year let's right let's pretend like we're calling this match of course we've been doing that anyway so nothing will change in that regard but we are also thrilled today to be joined by our stringer of for the event this week not just a stringer this week but someone you will see whenever you go to an ATP uh, challenger event when you go to the upper level U.S. Opens Grand Slams of the world. His work essential to making the tennis season go round and round. Mike Stevens, welcome to the Mini Break Podcast. It is a pleasure to have you. Well, I appreciate you guys bringing me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I saw Noah brought you on. I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm incredibly competitive. And oh. so I was like, you're going to go on the Cation cast, the coffee ah. cast? I, they don't want up us here. Come on. This, we were the original rackets. They may be behind, but we're the cracked rackets. And yes. so it is a, our pleasure to have you here, Mike. And Chris, I, I know all of your thoughts on all of these things, so I want to start with Mike. You've been to a lot of challenger events. Yes. You've been Cleveland. You've been, you know, that's similar to here, I suppose, but you've been around the country, maybe even outside of the country for events. Where does this varsity tennis center, this atmosphere in Ann Arbor, rank to you? How did, you know, how do the college towns fare compared to maybe some of the other cities you've seen? You know what, I've got a lot of experience with the college tennis as well. Um, however, it wasn't until that doubles match. Fenty Seymour. <laughs> the doubles match of the week that really brought out the college environment for me here. It was fantastic. It was electric. And so I would say that match ranked the varsity tennis center here in Michigan Above all the others. Like, it was so exciting. <laughs> I think you've just been, it's still fresh in your mind, right? New season, new yeah, year, first one to kick off the event. But it did feel, Chris, and I'll, I'll take this to you as well, we know and we've talked about college tennis, so, you know, six courts in a row versus four and four, all of that different format. The way this challenger event was played, the two play courts side by side, it really, it, it allowed the crowd to condense. And I would say, particularly for this final weekend, I think they enjoyed the college ties of some of our players. They enjoyed seeing some American players still in action. I thought, and I'm biased, let's be clear, I think our listeners, no longer viewers, now listeners are aware of that, but I really enjoyed the Varsity Tennis Center, and I only I hope this is the first of you know, many returns for this event. Yeah, hopefully they're able to bring it back, but it definitely not us, but bring it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hope hopefully that's us too. I mean, we gotta whenever we just you know at worst we tell we I'll tell Adam here. we tell Adam <laughs> yeah. to make sure that they they work it out with him to schedule it when Mike's out of town. Yeah. So, so there's no question that, that Mike can't do the event, but. Uh, 
But no, yeah, I mean, hopefully they bring it back. It was, it was, it was very good, especially this type of event where they're only using two courts, so they can be on the same side. You can, folks can choose what they want to see, and then, uh, and then for the finals weekend, they had a good crowd from the city uh, and the school, and you know, and the kids, and they brought out, you know, for yesterday they brought out a, a, a program and a lot of kids to watch. But it was, you know, it was, it was a very good fan atmosphere. Good good set of fans in the in the crowd it was it was nice yeah I, I thought it was really fun and i think that atmosphere the energy one guy in particular who enjoyed it the most with the winner uh you know the two winners i think they both enjoyed it but the winners of that friday night semifinal, nick barriantos and alejandro gomez they were the finalists today and they took on our number three seeds robert galloway and uh hans hock now, coming into this one, both teams had played three matches. All three of the matches for each of the teams had gone to three sets. In particular, for Hawk and uh, Galloway, spoiler alert, they're the winners. Uh, they had lost all three first sets in their first matches, and that was the start of the, the, the tone that was set today. No tiebreaker here, but Barrientos Gomez taking the first set 6-4. And then we saw a flipping of the script. Galloway, Hawk finding their rhythm. They kept pushing forward, working their way to the net. Uh, we've all got the chance to see them play all week long, but I want, I want to start with you, Mike. I, I know you know Robert Galloway, a guy who was a staple of the Challenger Tour last year. He's got a bunch of points to defend. It felt, and Chris and I talked about this in the booth, so I want to know your opinion, as though Hans and Galloway, though they trailed early, it felt like they were the best doubles team all week, and that they emerged with the title does not surprise me in the slightest. Yes, they, their their play has been so consistent this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like you said, you know, Robert, he's a staple uh, of this tour, so I've seen him play a lot, and they just never seem to get flustered. Sure, they dropped the first set, but, uh, you know, while they was waiting to start the second set, you could just tell... Like, I felt like they knew we got the second set. And for Hawk, uh, what is he string at? Because it's got to be, I, I just feel like his reactions, he just absorbs everything so easily. So I'm curious, what, what's he looking at? So he's, uh, he, he plays, uh, obviously, a very stiff frame in that Babylon racket that he's got. Yeah. And he's playing Selenko Tourbite uh, at 53 pounds. Yeah, that sounds and, right. And you can just see it uh, on his racket. Uh, it's very, he's very comfortable with that. And obviously, I think it's a great string intention for him. Yeah, Chris, for you, flip side, uh, you were in the, going into that third set breaker. You asked me, Alex, who are you leaning towards? And I gave the spiel up. Well, you know, in a third set breaker, you usually go with the guys with the bigger serve. Alejandro Gomez hit 40 aces against Martin Redlicky and That's lost the match. Yeah, which just doesn't make sense. Um, so obviously he had the biggest serve on the court. And yet I said, with that in mind, give me Galloway and Hawk. And so to you now, I say, <laughs> but uh, what did you think of the match? Yeah, I thought it was a great match. I'll have to say my 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 absolute favorite comment of the week. I have no idea how these officials don't code these guys. But, <laughs> but when Hawk says to Roger, "You just sit there and be comfortable," <laughs> you know, if it was preceded by a by a like, "What are you doing, Roger?" and then he pauses for a second, and then he goes, "Do you just sit there and be comfortable?" I can't <laughs> believe Roger just sat there and was comfortable. I feel like that was one of the underlying themes of the week, and so same going back, Mike, leaning on your experience, there are a lot of close calls. They're always going to be, the margins are so thin. Yes. This week in particular, it felt like we saw the players edgy, and I'm curious, again, from your perspective, is that unique to this week, or is that something to expect? I think it's unique to this week, from my experience. I've never seen so much, like you said, edginess between the players 
and uh, and the officials. It was all, and they were addressing them by first name, right? I just you you never see that. <laughs> right, and they well, and they're comfortable with these officials, but yeah, this week in particular, mm-hmm. and I don't know if the calls were any different this week than any other week, <laughs> yeah. but there was definitely an edginess, and I wonder if sometimes that goes into the locker rooms and the players talk and they're mm-hmm. like. But then it just snowballs, then, then it just like, snowballs. oh, my calls were horrible. So, right. on the so everyone comes out. everything this week or whatever. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think it was Blanche that said it in his uh, semifinal match. It's like, n- the calls aren't just, you're not just messing up my calls, you're messing <laughs> us both. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> just let us both do our thing. That is, I agree with you. And it was, it was strange to see at the same time, I think it was in that second set, they were not down a break because there were only two breaks of serve in the match, but... After that exchange with Galloway and Hawk and the Lions person, you saw them wake up. Their intensity picked up tremendously, didn't sure. it, Mike? Absolutely. Um, and, and I'm not sure if they were asleep, but they were definitely more intense after that. Yeah, and so for Chris, we, this was something we talked about in the play-by-play booth. For Galloway and Hans, uh, Hawk, I, I got that name wrong all week, so why change now? Uh, for <laughs> Galloway and Hawk, you look at what they did in... Uh, that second set, they made a switch. Galloway was serving first at the beginning. He had been the more dominant server all week long, and yet he was the guy who got struggled, almost got broken twice, did get broken in that first set. What did you think of that adjustment in the moment, and ultimately, you know, what did you think of this Hawk Galloway team playing together for the first time? Both of them now top 130. Looks like they're, you know, on that precipice of the top 100, but. As you mentioned, Mike, this is a really fundamentally sound team, Chris. Yeah, they look. I mean, to the fact that this is the first time they've played together. Now they, you know, they, they said they've known each other for a number of years, uh, and maybe that helps. But the fact they're playing together for the first time, it sure didn't look like it. I mean, they were in most cases right on cue with switches and and their crisscross applesauce, as you started to say at one point before you completely butchered whatever came after it. I don't remember. I'll have to re-listen to the play-by-play for that. But uh, I forgot about that. I had blocked it out. You're so right. <laughs> but but no, yeah. I mean, they were like they were. They looked like they'd been playing together for a while, and and you know they complemented each other well. And and Hawks just got. I mean, it's so much fun watching him. His hands are so good. I like just seeing him at the net and watching the guys try to drill him because he's putting the ball on his on the strings wherever you put it. Doesn't you know add him out to you know wherever. It's it's going. He's getting a racket. And there were two moments to me that stick out. Galloway, or, or I know Hawk's hands are amazing, but in terms of the, the importance of those hands, Galloway firing a couple of forehands at Barrientos. Barrientos then returning the favor yes. a couple of points later. We alluded to him diving on the court, but can't emphasize enough the effort put forward from Nicholas Barrientos, who's coming off of injury. I think big gap between 18 and 19 for him, Mike. Him and Alejandro Gomez, both guys, I think Barrientos had been top 100. Gomez reached a career high this week with his results right around that top 200. I've never seen someone give that sort of effort. So, again, I'm asking you week in, week out, how often do you see a player dive? Not once, not twice, but three times, Mike. You know, every now and then you might see one for a tournament. And on the grass. We, on the grass. <laughs> yeah. And here we see the same player multiple times in the tournament. I just think he was hungry this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know, if, like I said, I don't know if it was the Samar of Fenty match that brought it out yeah. in him. Um, but those two guys really woke up Gomez. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, of course, you know, they woke up um, 
uh, Alejandro part. as well yeah. mm-hmm. uh, from the service line yeah. when, when he took the shot at the net. Oh, yeah, and we forgot Barrientos takes a shot at his own partner in I, this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's Gomez. hits him in the back. Yeah, right in the back, and uh, you could tell that was a stinger, too. You're just like the way Gomez unloads some forehands. You're right. just like, this guy. So good. But I, I, I really do think, and Chris, we, we can wrap here in terms of why Galloway and Hawk won. You sort of mentioned this. They're just so fundamentally sound. They come in, they serve in volley. Galloway did not play well for the first set and a half. I, I just really, and you could see him fighting that frustration on his face. And yet, they stuck to their plays. They knew what they wanted to do. You really thought this team had played together for maybe a couple of years, even certainly not their first time, because they they just are so fundamentally sound. Yeah, I mean that's. The kind of doubles I think you and I both like to see. Two guys coming in, two guys at the net, on top of the net. Uh, if they can play their game, they can get to the net. Uh, it's Yeah, they're they're tough to beat. Mm-hmm. And look, they, I, I think we can agree, Mike, ha, again, Hawk, Galloway. That, that was the team to beat all week long. Three yeah. set battles, but they looked so good in the end. And like you said, though, I was so surprised to hear that this is their first time yeah. playing together. They were uh, in quite in sync the whole week. Um, and it did look like, to me that they were going to take it, but it's only 10-8 in the third. Yeah. <laughs> so this really match really could have flipped it was like, so quickly. I, I think it was 17 of 17 on the first service points. It was 9-8. Right. They were, or No, no, no. It wasn't 17 because it was at that 8-7.497 that they got. So 16 of 16. Yeah, first 16 all to the server. Yeah, and it speaks to how well uh, both, all four guys were serving. Yes. We're indoors here, so you expect to see that. But they certainly lived up to the hype. And I will say, as good as that match was, there's no doubt to me that the better of the two matches was our singles final. And we got exactly what we deserved as fans. Ulysses Blanche coming out, uh, winning the second challenger title of his career. 3-6-6-4-6-2 over the number four seed and former USF All-American Roberto Sid. We, uh, on the broadcast booth, had the fortune of being joined by Michigan head coach Adam Steinberg during the first set, so I didn't get to watch it as closely. Uh, Chris and then Mike, I'm curious your guys' thoughts because... Roberto Sid, I, I mean, I, I was watching, but he went up a set four-one, a break, and Mike, it, it, it felt like the match was. It felt like it was his. It did at four-one. I started taking my machine down. <laughs> yeah. I said, "This match is over." Mm-hmm. And to see Ulysses turn not only that second round, but uh, to turn around the match was it was quite impressive. And I, I think, of course, nothing against Roberto, but I think the best player of the week. Won this tournament. I could not. Dis- I could not agree more. Excuse me, Chris. Yeah, I mean, he's. It. It did. It looked like up up to the point where it was four one in the second. Sid looked like he was on cruise control, right. but it was still only one break. And somehow, Blanche found the break. And then, after getting the first break, that was you know all of a sudden he went on a run. And I wouldn't even say in the second set that he was hitting probably. As he he got the, he got a break and he got on a little roll. They were really tight, but then rolling into that third set, it was it was almost like was that loosened good. him up. Coronation. And then he just the third set was unbelievable. His serves mm-hmm. in the third set were so loose, as you said, Chris. I mean, wow. Yeah, and this to me is where uh, it, I'm not going to say it's half the reason. I'm very fond of you, Mike. But this question is why I wanted you on today's pod more than anything. If you watch this stream, you watch Ulysses Blanche play, the guy hits the biggest ball here. Biggest serve, biggest forehand. I asked you this last night. He strings his racket at 58 pounds. 58 pounds. Is that a t- I mean, 
that's a testament to his wrist, his arm talent, correct? Because that's that's heavy. That is, and you know, and, and especially with the poly now, and he's playing 16 gauge, 1.30 millimeter uh, RPM blast at 58 pounds. That's that's very tight. That's tight. Yeah, that's very tight, and it'll generate that much power. And that much spin mm-hmm. is quite impressive. And it's why every time I feel like he makes contact, you almost are like, was that a shank? You're like, what's going on here? And yet it was clean. Right. He's a very clean ball striker. Mm-hmm. And so it's a testament to his play. You brought up the first serve as well. That's the stat to look at, Chris, because in that first set he lost. Ulysses Blanche, who's been using the first serve, using that to set up the forehands, only makes 59% of his first serves. Then those second two sets, 78% yeah. in that second set. Uh, you look in the third, 67 percent he's 12 of 12 on first serve points there Chris that was the difference as Mike said it's that the best player this week Ulysses Blanche when he was executing the way he wanted to making that first serve getting a first forehand he was just too good yeah it's the same thing we said all week if he hits his ball he it doesn't matter who's on the other side of the net although for a set and a half I, you know, I was starting to question that because I'll tell you what, Roberto Sid was, and we mentioned this on the broadcast, he was getting balls back that nobody else had gotten back all week. He anticipated so well. It was like he knew exactly where, because Blanche hit the ball so hard that there's no, you can't wait till he hits it and start moving right. to get there. He was already on the way and he was right 95% of the time. He knew where he was going and he was making Blanche hit one extra, two extra, three extra balls, and eventually he missed one. Well, you know, Blanche just got too good. Maybe he didn't guess as well, but, um, it, you know, it didn't stay that way. But, yeah, Sid was just – and it wasn't just defense. You would think the way where I'm describing it, he was on the defensive the whole time. No, he was getting there, and he was getting there so easily that he would turn them into offensive balls that pinned Blanche back and either win a point off it or, in some cases, he would come in. I mean, his, his – Counter punching and then turning it into taking control for a set and a half was outstanding. And Mike, I know you spoke fondly about Roberto Sid. Uh, I, I think he's forty-five pounds, right? Forty-three. Forty-three, which makes sense because he needs that extra boost. But his racket is so different than <laughs> Ulysses. He's playing the new Wilson Clash, which is a very flexible racket. Is it? Absolutely, and uh, generates an enormous amount of power. And then at forty-three pounds, yeah, he can do. It. He can do it. Well, the reason I bring that up is because it felt as though he was absorbing Ulysses' pace so well through that first set, right? Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. You know, and I heard the I, I, where I string is right behind a crowd, a portion of the crowd, and they're like, what does Ulysses have to do to win a point? That's what I'm saying. He was like, so good from Roberto, right? He was. And the way he, it was counterpunching. That's the term I want to go with because it wasn't defensive tennis. You're right. It was, you know, I'm going to absorb Blanche's pace. I'm going to keep him in the outer thirds. I also think a sneaky play from Roberto said, because you can't give him two passing shots. It's similar to Stefan Kozlov. You just you can't do it. He's too quick. Right. And he forced Blanche, Mike, to hit so many just first volleys today. And Blanche didn't have to do that all week. That's right. Yes. Uh, I, mean, I thought the game plan was amazing for Roberto. But the thing that really amazed me the most is the change in Ulysses today compared to the other days. Great. Granted, he played well, but his emotions maintained in check Rocks. so well. Mm-hmm. Lost the first set, down a break in the second set, but yet he didn't get upset. 
uh, like I've seen him do, but uh, I was just amazed at how well he controlled his emotions. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Talked to him yesterday. He said that was a big thing he worked on this season. You turn 21 and there are obvious physical developments you make as you enter your 20s, but even more important are the mental developments, right, Chris? And it's that it didn't... I mean, he got a little testy with the chairperson at one point. I think there was a call he did not like. It was on the break point or right around that time and kind of propelled him forward. But, you know, earlier in the week, you're right, Mike, we saw him kind of tussle with some of these chair people, with these lines people, getting angry at the ball kids who weren't going fast or going too slow, whatever. There was none of that today. He was locked in. He was focused. And now he's back inside the top 300. Yeah, I mean, that's a, and that's huge as we talked about. I mean, getting inside the top 300, we had run through on the broadcast kind of in a, in a Challenger 80 event like this, you know, top 500, you're in, no problem. Mm-hmm. You get into the 90s, like the 90 this week that was in Nemea. Yeah, that's the 90. It was like 226. So you couldn't even get in there with a with a ranking outside, you know, even a 250 doesn't get you in. And then the, the 125 that was in Canberra, that was 176. Yeah, so, crazy. you know, if you want the, you want the bigger points, you gotta, you gotta get the ranking up there. And for him to jump from where he was all the way up into, you know, 265 is going to be huge for him. It sets up the year. I mean, he really needed that to just guarantee him, you know, challengers for sure, no matter what. And now probably getting into you know, probably getting into most of the 90, the Challenger 90 levels. Yeah, and I, I think we pointed to this all week long. The talent is there. Ulysses Blanchard just screams talent physically. The, the way he moves around the court, I, I think just the pace he can produce, his, the fact that he is always swinging through the ball, there's never any tentativeness. If he's going to go out, he's going to go out playing his style of tennis. And that's what you like to see from a 21-year-old. Decisive, authoritative, aggressive tennis. And I would like to see the volleys get better. I think we all would, and I think indoors was particularly well-suited for him. But he intended to start this year at the Futures in L.A., and there are a couple of Futures there back-to-back going on this week and next week, and instead he won a challenger. Like, that's tennis in a nutshell. You make one schedule change, and it could completely change the trajectory of your 2020 season. And I think that's what we're going to see here. You know, for Galloway and Hawk, Galloway has a bunch of points to defend. He had a really good beginning to the 2019 season. For Ulysses Blanche, it's the polar opposite. To have this on his resume this early in the year, Mike, I just... I think we're going to see it, the confidence he'll, you know, carry over all week long, he, everywhere. He spoke about that at the end of the match, about mm-hmm. you know what this is going to do for him. I, mean, I really think the biggest change for him is, is the confidence factor. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, all these guys are great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any of these guys can win. And, and in person, you're there week to week. You And being here this week, you can really see the level between all of them. So, it's such it's, incremental difference. And it's that mental mm-hmm. edge uh, that one tournament can bring you to the next one. And I think that confidence is going to be a huge boost for him. Absolutely. And I think, uh, I, you know, I want to give you the final thoughts here, Chris. But uh, this is the theme. We've said it a couple of times, not only on the broadcast, but in this podcast. The best player won, right? Yeah, the best player for certainly the, be, the player uh, that on the played, week on the yeah, week. Yeah, the player yes, that played the, the best this week 
won. Yeah, he yeah. had he had definitely played the best all week for sure. Yeah, and we'll see what that confidence does for him moving forward. Since we have you here, Mike, the term confidence in play, nothing brings a player more or less confidence than how they're feeling on the court, how they're making contact with the ball. Is the ball as big as they want? Are they clean? Then with the strings. Strings essential to a a person's performance. And yet, I feel as though the science of stringing, the science of not only what tension to use, what string to use, how it affects your ball, I feel like it's the most underappreciated aspect of professional tennis because... Each you know each player with along with their own playing style, it's their own stick, right? And that stick is a reflection of that playing personality. Absolutely. I mean, you know, so there's so many variables. One, the stiffness of the of the material that the the frame is made of, and then the stiffness of the string, the tension. I mean, there's so many variables that go into it. And you're right. Each player has their own racket that's customized to their game, with their string that's customized to their game, and then the tension. Um, and then us as stringers, the goal for us is to make them not think about the string job. <laughs> like, if they're thinking about what we did, then we haven't done a good job. Mm-hmm. And when you're indoors here to start the year, do you tell guys, hey, you may want it a pound looser, a pound so heavier? So what we do, that's a good question. We don't tell them that. Yeah. Um, however, we do let them know that, you know, yeah. we're pretty good stringers and we're going to give them consistent stringing. However, what we see from our machines is that if they're considering 52 or 54 pounds, maybe go 52 Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, a lot of people do believe that, uh, hey, that string was a little tighter than I'm used to. We attribute that to just good quality stringing and uh, precise machines. Mm-hmm. That's No, that's awesome to hear. And, yeah, I, I imagine they don't want to turn for you to coach them. But right. you, we mentioned you see them each and every week. And so how fun for that, you know, how big a part is that for you getting to be interactive with the players? Say, hey, I, I, I saw this. I could hear it, you know, because no one knows the stringing better than you. Right, and it's, it's, a, it's one of the reasons I do this. Mm-hmm. Of uh, and it's really, you know, I'm blessed to be able to string at the highest levels, the U.S. Open. This year I get to go to Paris for my first French Open. But it's really the challenger level that I enjoy the most because we do get to interact with the players more. Mm-hmm. And and at the beginning of the week, they don't know what to expect. So they come in and it's kind of like, what am I going to do this week? Blanche is like, am I going to do 59 pounds, 58 pounds, 57 pounds, mm-hmm. 60 pounds? And he ended up with 58 uh, Sid came in and he said, let's try 43, and we stayed that way the whole week. So sometimes they change and sometimes they don't, but I enjoy working with the players. Yeah, that's got to be so fun. Chris, by the way, if I, I'm going to ask a lot of questions, so if you have anything, please just interject. Let's go basic question. Everyone's thinking it. Highs, lows. The highest you've ever strung a professional racket and the lowest you've ever strung it. So, uh... uh Barbara Stritzeva uh, at the U.S. Open was at 80 pounds. 80? she break her wrist like it's one swing shattered? 80 pounds. What, um, what do you do as a string? Like, are you like, well, do you see the racket go? At, absolutely. At 80, it's scary. Absolutely. At 80 pounds, you see the racket just compress completely. Oh. She does have an open string pattern, but she's playing a very stiff string. Uh, Dustin uh, Brown was at 78 pounds for a really? while. With a much tighter string pattern. But see, a servant volleyer... I get that a little more. Right. Although Stritzel was pretty good too. so much more. Yeah, that too. Um, and then the lowest tension uh, was 13 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> Nestor at the, at the Miami Open. <laughs> He's playing with a slinky. <laughs> 13 pounds. It's like a, a, here, I've got a trampoline on my racket. When you get that number, were you like metric? Oh. Like well, he did 18 yeah, you pounds. Meant, you meant 13 kilos, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, if someone says 13, that's kilos and that's still a little low uh-huh. um, but he did an 18 pounds in the US uh, and we're like 
Oh my gosh, who can go lower than that? So he does. He goes lower at 13 pounds. Yeah, that's... I mean, you have to be so good to do... I had a friend in club who played at like 45 and because he was just right. having fun with it at the end, and it's like... It's a trampoline. Absolutely. And Jack... You know, so Jack... We're used to Jack Sock playing in the low 30s. Because... Uh-huh. You can see head, it. His yeah. racket head speed is so fast. Second to none. Um, yeah. But to see... And we're also seeing tensions drop uh, as... as as stringers get, or as players get accustomed to these lower tensions. You know, we saw 60s, 60s was the normal tension, and then we shifted these poly strings several years ago, and now players are drifting down, and we saw high 50s, and now we're seeing 40s and 30s. So so you do see trends over a decade. I don't know how yes. long you've been in stringing. You look 21 years old, so I can't imagine long. <laughs> it's the biceps. Um, right. But for you, uh, we'll say you've been in tennis two, three decades at this point. So it's so interesting. You know, uh, Noah featured me on Behind the Racket, which I'm pretty thankful for, but I've only been stringing tennis rackets for five years. Really? Yeah. And I to be at the you highest You feel experienced. Level, <laughs> yeah. I, I've had a lot of experience in five years, but so I haven't done this for very long. I was a mm-hmm. nuclear engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to jump into tennis, is, is, it's been fun, but um, I've just been blessed to be at the U.S. Open for the last four years. Um, so... I've seen a lot in five years. I see. So, have you seen a shift? Because there's so much talk. Yeah. The courts have slowed. The balls have changed. How, what does that shift look like? So, and, and although I've only been stringing for five years, I've talked to these stringers who've been doing it for twenty and thirty years, and we're seeing that just the, the trend is tensions are dropping. Okay, that's because frames are stiffer and the strings are stiff, and so we've got to drop the tension. Or one, your arm will fall off. Mm-hmm. But two, it gives you a little more topspin. Topspin is the is the name of the game. Mm-hmm. I'm curious because you talk about it. You know, injuries being a factor generationally, and it's only been five years, so you haven't really seen a new generation come versus right. an old one yet completely sh- uh, phase out. But do you think, because you watch a Dennis Shapovalov hit the ball, or uh, the two guys I will point to, and I apologize for repeating this, Chris, if you haven't seen them in person, Andre Rublev and Felix Ogier-Alessin, the ball sounds different when they hit forehand. So I'm curious, do you see these young athletes, even Blanche at 58 doing what he can power-wise, have the athletes gotten better and the stringing, you know, they, they can string lower because they have such fast racket speed? Or is it just, a you know, is it that the technology's changed more than the athlete? That's amazing. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but they sure do hit the ball hard. Yeah, right? I mean, and, and so I got to string for FAA um, last year and Dennis at the, at the U.S. Open this year. And, and they strike the ball so cleanly. Mm-hmm. I tell you, when you listen to uh, Ulysses warming up, yeah. It sounds just like those guys. Yeah, right? They're hitting it so well, and that's what's amazing. This is the Challenger Series versus the Grand Slams, and courtside, it sounds the same. Yeah, so I, for me, I, I, that's why I'm like I'm convinced it's the athletes as much as the technology, because Absolutely. all of these young guys coming up, it's the sound. It's yeah. just, it feels different, Chris. By the way, Chris Halley, we're still here. Uh, just really just enjoying. <laughs> no, I'm, this. I'm listening. I'm sitting here thinking of all these questions that I that that I've got for Mike too. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I I can't. It, it's beyond me. I can't even fathom how they hit the ball like they hit the ball. That's so. why we're in the booth, yeah, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. That's yeah, why it's, it's <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not even. Yeah. All right. Well, that'll like, be my segue time. for you. I got most of my questions off there. What do you got, Chris? Well, so I, so so I guess we you know we talk about tensions heavy. I don't even know if you can. My first question is, can you, and if you can, have you ever strung a wooden racket? Okay. 
Yes, I have thrown <laughs> a wooden racket. Great question. Um, but not for a player. Okay. It was for a private client who had bought a wooden racket and he wanted to hang it on his wall. So those, so those machines will string Absolutely. a wooden racket. Absolutely. You just have to so, make it smaller at this moment. Right. So what do, you stri- what, do you, what kind of tension do you string a wooden racket at? You know, well, typically they strung them at much higher tensions. Um, and they used a synthetic material. But this guy, he wasn't playing the racket, so I strung it at 50 pounds with synthetic guts. You know, <laughs> just something to hang on Yeah, the wall. of course. For sure. um, but I've never strung a, a 2000, a Jimmy Connors. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to be in completely stringing intelligent to be able to string that racket. Mm-hmm. These rackets, they're pretty simple to string. At least I think they are. Mm-hmm. But Jimmy Connors uh, S2000. Too much. It's unbelievable, the pattern. It's so confusing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the, the craziest, like, I mean, just, like, walk up, I mean, walk up crazy story, whether it's like, hey, I go on in five minutes, give me the racket, or... It's here's, not working today. Or here's, here's yeah. 12 rackets. I need them all in two hours or, you know, whatever. And you don't well, have to give names. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the norm, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's just talk about today. Uh, yeah. 20 minutes before the match. I yeah. got a racket. Really? I mean, I mean, I'm not going to ask who, but was it a tension thing? Was it a... No. Um, he wasn't going to... It was a... I don't think it's a... I mean, it's okay. It's, it's Nicholas. And yeah. So I strung a few rackets for him this week, and he wasn't going to go with another racket. He, he felt fine with the rackets that I strung from yesterday. And then uh, they, they were on the court and getting ready to go on, and he goes... It's the finals. Let's do one more. <laughs> so 20 minutes before the match, uh, he, he gives me his racket. So uh, fortunately for me, it was an easy racket to string. All right, then let's go the other way. So the most number of rackets anybody's ever just came up to you and been like, here you go. So it, it, that's pretty – at the U.S. Open, it's pretty standard. A lot of players have 12, uh, 12 rackets for a match. 12? Um, and they want them all done at once. What do you need 12? And they want them all done at once. Um <laughs> So all the same too. Is anyone like, hey, yes. looser or tighter? So, uh, but yeah, they don't, yeah, I would think they'd go like, hey, I, I need like, you know, three at at fifty two, yeah, yeah, and then yeah, a, yeah. and then another three at fifty, like just in case in the match. I want you know, it's very. I've never been Serena's stringer, mm-hmm. um, but uh, she always has ten to twelve rackets for a match. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I got to string for Coco Vandaway last year uh, when she won doubles, mm-hmm. and uh, we did twelve rackets for um, for her doubles final. Oh my gosh, that's ridiculous! And, and twelve rackets it takes a while, mm-hmm. um, but uh, to do one player's rackets for for a while is just kind of like wow. That's do you, a lot of rackets. Do you find players become superstitious if you string for them on day one and it works? They come back to you. I don't know if well, I don't know if they're superstitious. Yeah, that might not be the right word. Routine. But what we do for them though is once a player, once we are assigned a player, we keep the player. Oh, okay. So we don't we don't have them. They don't have to worry about that. They don't have to worry about a different stringer, different machine. We keep the same stringer for the whole player, or for the whole tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's I know good for the players. Yeah, I know the answer to this, but I know probably a lot of the listeners don't, because <laughs> I've talked to you on many occasions. That during an event, like say the U.S. Open, right? The average number of hours you're in the stringing room and every, rackets per day, every day. Yeah. So, um, great question. I spend 30 days in Manhattan for the U.S. Open because I get there several days before Quali starts to set up the room. And then I fly out the day after, so that's right at 30 days. And 30 once, days in New York? 30 days in Manhattan, oh my uh, going back and forth to Queens. Um, <laughs> it's great. You know, I love New York. And I'm ready to go home after two weeks. Um, so the average day, we get there between 7 and 7.30 in the morning. And if we leave by 9 or 10 o'clock, we feel like uh, we've we hit the lottery. 
hit the lotto, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. So an average day for us is 15 to 18 hours. And we do that for 21 days straight. And it's what, about, so three hours or three rackets an hour, maybe four? So we don't have a time that uh, we're required. Um, it's basically whatever the player wants, we give them. Okay, sure. Um, but four an hour is, is a good pace that is... for us. But we don't do that for ten hours yeah. um, because there's on and off times. Yeah, there's a break, sure. Um, but you're looking at anywhere between 30, 35 to 40 rackets a day for the heavy days. Um, and at the U.S. Open, we'll have 21 stringers come close to 6,000 rackets this is for the a, tournament. Uh, I'm going to acknowledge, not dumb question, but an easy one. Your favorite type of racket to string? Just maybe it's something about the way you can string it, the tension you can produce on it. I know it's kind of crazy. Uh, the, the new Wilson Clash, mm-hmm. maybe it's because I play it, <laughs> is my favorite racket to string. Um, it's a very forgiving string pattern. Uh, it's a 16 by 19 frame. And it's just very easy to string. I'm, and I don't even know why it's easy to string, but it's very easy to string, and I love it. And fortunately for me, Roberto uh, <laughs> this week had that racket, and he had the most rackets for any player during the week. Uh, so at least I got to string my favorite racket the most. That's why he plays the most physical matches. Is there a racket without, you know, because I'm sure you like working with all of the rackets, but is <laughs> yeah. there, well, yeah, or, or there maybe. There are some, but I don't. Well, I'm saying for, you know. For a pair, look, we at Crack Rackets will take any of the rackets as sponsors. Um, and Mike, we appreciate you rocking a CR hat right now. Absolutely. But is there a model of racket that gets frustrating, or maybe it's like when people say thirty-six, you're like, really, you want it that light? No, it, it, and I don't even mind saying this. Um, it's the prestige mm-hmm. uh, by head, and that's only because it's got an encapsulated grommet system that make it very so it's closed, mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to get the string. Of course, that's a phenomenal racket to play if you're good enough. I'm not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the smaller uh, prestiges, they're 18 by 20 pattern on a very small frame, very tough grommet system. That's a challenging racket to string. I don't know which one that is. What's Nuno play? So he's Nuno, a head, okay, so he's he, a head something. I don't it, remember. It's a radical. Oh, the radical. However, right. he does have the pro grommet system. I was say I thought he had the grommets because he. Re- he I remember him telling me. They sent him new rackets, but they weren't with the grommets the way he wanted Correct. it, and he had to have them send him new rackets again that so had the grommets. So he plays a radical that doesn't normally have this grommet system, but it's the same grommet system as a Prestige. Okay. And, and can you, for our listeners who may not know what the grommet system is, that's the top, right? That's how the you see it. The grommet system indented. is the little plastic that goes through the holes mm-hmm. so the string doesn't contact the frame itself. Uh-huh. It allows the string to, to bend through the frame and not cut with the frame because the frame is sharp mm-hmm. and so the grommet system just protects the string from the frame um, a Robin Haase no doubt hands down toughest racket I've ever strung really? absolutely um, and it's because it's a small frame it's 18 by 20 tough string um, and I just drew him for three tournaments in a row <laughs> and I was like oh my gosh yeah. uh, you know when you see six Robin Haase rackets show up you're just hating life for the next two hours <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, then this will be my last serious question, uh, and I know, again, you guys have been, Chris in particular, I know you have a flight to catch, you've both been so kind with your time all week. Mains versus crosses. Yes. I think the basic tennis player, myself included, doesn't think about doing different things there. It's just 59 all the way around. Right. Can you explain how, why there's more nuance to that, why you may want something different one way or the other? And there's definitely different thoughts on that question, that's a great question. Um, some players like to change tension for the crosses, uh, and some players keep it the same. Let's start with uh, one of the most famous players today, Rafa Nadal. 
He does not change tension in the mains and crosses. Never. He is twenty. Never. No matter the surface, he doesn't even change tension. He's twenty-five kilos, three sixty-five. Mm-hmm. I mean, he never changes. And then there's Roger Federer. He has a different tension in the crosses as he does in mains, but he has two different types of strings. Mm-hmm. So typically, when we change the stripe types of strings, it's a good idea to change your tension because you have different string types. Mm-hmm. Um, I play the same type of poly throughout, and I drop the tension on the crosses. Um, and the reason I do it is where the crosses hold the main strings together, and I like to drop the tension, and I feel like I get more spin production mm-hmm. because the main strings are free to move more freely if you have a lower cross tension. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason I do it. Okay. Um, but Rafa Nadal gets plenty of spin production, <laughs> yeah. and he doesn't drop the tension. So. He's the exception, though, not the rule for everything he does. I lied. I'm going to sneak one more in here, and this is a Noah Rubin-themed question, but... The financial cost of stringing. Uh, I, I can't imagine these players get their string by you for free. Correct. Now, they may get their string for free from a sponsor, but the service fee itself isn't yes. free. And so I'm curious for you, I'm, you know, you don't have to divulge any player in particular, but finances are a big issue for many any player trying to break through in professional tennis. The challenge level, no exception. So I'm curious for you. How real is that financial burden felt, you know, even as a stringer? Because uh, let's say it's, I'm not going to, Roberto Sid three years ago, and he's just fresh out of USF. He doesn't have an established ranking, and he needs his rackets done. Is that an issue for some players for you? Absolutely. Um, Week after week after week, they're having to pay stringers. Yeah. And if they don't make it past the first round. It's not worth it. it, It's not not beneficial for them. But yet, at the same time, they need fresh strings for consistent play. And so I've always told, I'll tell every player, I think the more frequently you string your racket, the better you're going to play. So there's a trade-off. Um, there are some guys that play uh, in this series, they string their own rackets. And to me, I'm a stringer and I get paid by these players. Yeah. But I think for the player who wants consistent stringing day in and day out, and they're on a budget, I think they should travel with their own stringer. That's the way um, to do it. And there are some guys on this, and they have the small pro stringer set up and they can carry it with them on their flights mm-hmm. and they string their own rackets. So the pro stringer you can actually take, when you say carry on your flight, it's a, you have to check it's it on very or it small, actually fits in like a carry-on no, bag? Oh, it fits in a carry-on bag. It's a very small device. It mounts to a table and I will tell you, you can't take the tensions from that thing and correlate them to the tensions on my Wilson Bayardo. But for a but player, it doesn't matter. You. Yeah, right. if you're playing the same thing the every week, you know what it is. player knows what tension and it's very consistent for him and he's not having to pay. And so he's got time in the hotel. Why not do your own? Um, All right, so here, here's another one then, based on Gruskin's theme of, of the monetary. <laughs> I don't like this. Yeah. Well, only because I know of something that happened this week. So, so names withheld, of course. But no. on, on average, on average, and I'm hoping it's a really low number, the number of guys that stiff you on a weekly basis. I like and, the, and when that happens, I like to think that they have just forgotten. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and when I was going to say, delayed. and when that happens, clearly you're going to see them again because these aren't guys that come out to play one tournament in their life and go home. So that happens a lot. So the next time you see them and they get reminded, is you know, is it a, oh man, sorry, I totally forgot, or like, but at the Challenger Series, um, they usually pay us with a credit card. Mm-hmm. Whereas at the Grand Slam, it's taken out of prize money. Official, you know, the system is much bigger there. Yeah, so sure. the players don't have to worry about it. One of the things we do is they give us their reel of string, and we just hold on to it for them so they don't have to carry it around. Yeah. And it's usually when they get to their next destination, they're like, I don't have my string. 
Oh, uh, I forgot the stringer. <laughs> <laughs> so that string is like a little piece of collateral. Yeah, it's <laughs> perfect. Yeah. And so, uh, but it happens a lot, and they do forget. Um, you know, this last match that happened. One of the things we like to do before the finals is actually just collect payment before the match, yeah. so the the guys don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I don't know if they stiff us, but they forget us. <laughs> yeah. Some of them are just on payment plans. And, and, and usually what we can do is we can reach out to the tournament director, take it out of prize money, or I'll see him at the next tournament. Mm-hmm. That's happened before. You know, we'll see him in Cleveland. Hey, you owe us for four rackets. Oh, okay, just add it to my bill. Mm-hmm. And then we hope they don't stiff us out of Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course, and you've been so kind with your time, so we can wrap up here. But as you go from city to city... Uh, for you, what's the continued appeal? Obviously, you want to make a living. I know that. But what is it about you know stringing tennis because you're a nuclear engineer? Obviously, there's a background there that you could be doing something else. Why this? Uh, that's a, my wife asked me that question. <laughs> what I that's why I don't leave, have one. I have Chris. When I, when I decided yeah. to leave the nuclear industry, she goes, really? Why <laughs> I know. It's a great story, actually, behind um, why. But yeah, and I'll, I'll plug behind the racket. You can read more about my story there. But... But the reason I do it is for this level of stringing, I get to interact with the players. If every tournament was like the U.S. Open, I'd probably stop doing it, to be honest, because we don't get to deal on a personal level with the players. But when I get to do a junior USTA event or a collegiate event or a challenger event, I'm dealing with the players. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's that personal interaction that just motivates me. It's not the money. Of course, I've got to make it from week to week. Um, I wouldn't do it for free. Um, but it's that player involvement. It's when you get to meet a team like Mississippi State. Um, I fell in love with Mississippi State. I didn't team. even have to plug it. Except for you. Trevor. But yeah. so, <laughs> I fell in love with the team, and it's not the Bulldogs. I mean, I went to Auburn. My, you know, but it, it's the team. But it's not the Mississippi State it's the guys that are on the team. And so it's that personal interaction with them that just motivates me to keep doing this. It's talking to Roberto and Ulysses in the locker room before the match and just them thanking me for what we've done for the week. If it weren't for that, I would just pack it up and go home. But that's what keeps me coming back. Yeah, and as you mentioned, uh, more for people who are curious about your story, they can find that story at Behind the Racket. And I know I speak for Chris, uh, myself, anyone who gets to interact with you. It's so fun to just chat with you. I feel like, you know, as we work, I don't know if I'm at this point yet, but eventually I'm going to have, you know, sources inside of the tournament are telling me, and it's going to be Mike Stevens, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> because seriously, your insight, just what you've seen week in, week out, it's instrumental and just advice, just experience we can rely Upon, so so fun to get to see it's you all. It's been a week. blast. Yeah, and it's been fun. I uh, a little yeah. less fun. <laughs> Are you like that? Yeah. He's looking at Mike. It's been fun. Huge smile on his face. Turns to the right, sees me. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's like you go home for the holidays because you have to, not because you want to. Yeah. Oh my, God. No. My, my wife is looking so good right now. <laughs> That's actually what you don't realize is I'm just doing a ploy here, Chris, because happy wife, happy life. So I'm trying to get you in that mindset. But I, I it's been an absolute pleasure working with both of you guys this week. Cannot thank you enough, Chris, for putting up with my nonsense, my smells, all of the above in that corner. I mean, we got intimate. It was just me and you next to each other for hours at end. Mike, you, you again there as well.
Kyle. It was so much fun. I got to give a huge shout out to our super producers, Max Lingner and Daniel Westoff. Yep. No edits in this pod, so I'm not going to swear now, but they have an F of a job to do, and they have been killing it all week long. Uh, I like to throw in a late quack for them there. Usually they throw in a quack sound effect, but I'll keep it PG for you, Mike. Uh, but thank you to them because this doesn't happen with right. uh, this week of coverage without all they do. But for Mike Stevens, who again, for our listeners who are curious, maybe they're in your area for a pro event, they want to meet you. Where can they find your work? Yeah, so uh, uh, my company is called String Sensation, um, so they can find me on the on the web. But uh, you know, the next tournament for me is Cleveland. Mm-hmm. I uh, think us too. Yeah, so I'll do Cleveland, and then uh, I've kind of got a, a schedule laid out. But uh, after Cleveland, I'm gonna go out out west and uh, do the Easter Bowl. Mm-hmm. Then I'll come back and do the SECs. Uh, All right. I, I'm looking forward to the SECs, and then I head over to Paris mm-hmm. uh, for the French Open. Come right back, do some junior events, and then the next thing I know, it's August, and I'm going to New York again. Is, is it like one of those things like Delta, where it's like 3,000 rackets, gold member, 10,000 rackets, you know, diamond member, 15,000, yeah. and yeah, you do, are just do, like... Do you keep track? Do you have like a, hey, this is the, I've strung the most rackets ever for person X, and here's the total. We, we do, us nerds, stringing nerds. That's we, awesome. We do keep track. <laughs> and I have so who have you strung the most rackets yeah, hold for? Yeah, Five more minutes, listeners. I'm oh, sorry. Like the most rackets. Yeah, I've like ever. the most lifetime. Like who's? This is fascinating. Is it a spreadsheet like a Google Doc? I do, I keep it. That's genius. Because and I keep up with my players. <laughs> like I want to know who I've strung for, and so I, I keep up with that. Um, yeah, we do get different players tournament to tournament to tournament. Um, but uh, there's a WTA player, Polona Harkog, and I've probably strung the most for her. No wonder why she went off um, in 2019. It's and, all starting to come together. And, and because she turns in a lot of rackets, mm-hmm. uh, and, I've, and I've just been – the coach has asked for me to string for her, and so I get her tournament after tournament after tournament. Um, but uh, Robin Haase turn, turns in a lot of rackets as well. <laughs> When you play like he does, I mean, that string is breaking all the time. But really appreciate you again, Mike Stevens, yes. for coming on. It's for been a pleasure. Mike, for Chris Halliores, for our super producers, Daniel Westoff and Max Fliegner, and from our entire teams at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Chris, for the last time this week, what do we tell our listeners? Hey, that's the break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.